Hey, again, can you hear me? Man, I hate doing the podcast over Zoom. Yeah, I hear you just loud and clear. Uh, it's the only way I can make this happen this week. So I really appreciate you doing this. That doesn't look like your home office. Where the heck are you? I'm doing some work in the United States. And man, it's great to be away from six feet of snow in Winnipeg. So it's like warm there? It's so nice. Are you wearing shorts and short sleeves? Absolutely. Okay, so let's get this straight. While we're all freezing here in the dark, you went away to a sunny location and you didn't take me. I mean, I thought we were a team. You know, Negan and the Lone Ranger. When you leave the jurisdiction without telling me, man, it really puts the loan into Lone Ranger. Look, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to leave you on your own. It won't happen again. Oh, does that mean I can come with you on all your gigs? Like, you know, we're a permanent duo, like Batman and Robin, Han Solo and Chewbacca, like Lone Ranger and... Uh, hold, on, hold, hold, hold on there. I mean, we're a team. We're also individuals, too. You, like, you know what I mean. Oh, okay, fair enough. I guess I got nothing left to do but ride off into the sunset. Alone. No wingman. Hi, yo, Silver. Away. <laughs> The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Negan and the Lone Ranger. Here are your hosts, Negan Sinclair and Dan the Lone Ranger Let. Welcome to yet another episode of Negan and the Lone Ranger. I'm Dan Lett, joined by... Negan Sinclair. Here we are again. Uh, it's <clears throat> been yet another tough week in Winnipeg as we uh, sort of sit in the wake here of uh, what is a, just a national tragedy, but really also ground zero of what is in so many different ways, a mixture of indifference, uh, allegedly racism, uh, an issue that is unfolding so quickly that uh, I think in many ways, 150 years unveiling itself in so many different ways in our city, in our community. And uh, it seems like a story that won't go away for a very long period of time, but it uh, certainly is the issue of murder, missing Indigenous women and girls is something that is impacting all of us and is in all of our lives right now. Last week, you know, we were talking uh, when we were talking about this. I mean, re it was real time. Uh, news cycle, uh, things happening all the time. I think that the the big uh, evolution in the story last week was uh, an admission finally by uh, Winnipeg Police Service Chief Danny Smythe that when he decided back in June that they would not excavate the Prairie Green landfill, a privately owned landfill north of the city, to look for the remains of two of the victims of this serial killer, that um, it was, you know, they had decided pretty much on their own that it was impractical and bordering on impossible. Now, uh, there was, uh, and there was a few, I was able to get a few other details of this. They did have a small plan that they were able to devise internally. Um, it wasn't very extensive, maybe even just perfunctory, $150,000 plan to sort of get into the landfill somewhere between a month and two months after they think the remains went uh, went to that site and it was rejected 
this past week, uh, Chief Smythe admitted that when he made that decision, he actually didn't have the expertise, uh, either himself or in the department, to make that decision. And th that's what I think has really added a level of concern to the story um, and, and uh, drawn attention to the Chief's performance. There's so, so many questions that are being unveiled in real time here. And the, of course, the real thing that was unveiled this week uh, that was around the Chief Smythe's, it seemed like such a knee-jerk decision, but it also has so many uh, implications for the family of Mercedes Myron and Morgan Harris uh, because they need answers. They want to know. There's actually speculation now in the Indigenous community that all of this is a smokescreen and that somehow there's the remains at the Brady landfill. Of course, uh, I think that's what, that's what happens when there's many unanswered questions. Uh, people start to speculate and people start to worry uh, that the police are lying or that they're just not wanting to search. But the real big question is, is if they're not interested in finding the remains, uh, what is the evidence that they have? And obviously this is gesturing towards the case against Jeremy Skibicki, uh, the alleged serial murderer of these four women. Uh, and when will we find that out? Will that be during the trial? Will it be some of the more distressing details that those of us in the media are hearing about? Uh, of course, we have no way of being able to verify any of that information, uh, but it's it's leading to much more trauma, much more division, and much more anger, particularly from Indigenous families that uh, and advocates that want to find where these remains are, and they want the police to try. Uh, mm -hmm. We know that there's resources in the province to do this work. Uh, for instance, you know, in our colloquium at the University of Manitoba in our department, uh, Department of Indigenous Studies, we've had members from the province, uh, specifically archaeologist uh, Perry Blumquist, who has come in and uh, he's been involved in human remain excavations, uh, not only here, but elsewhere. And we have expertise here in Manitoba that has experience in studying, looking up human remains. So for the police chief to make a decision without consulting with the province seems very abnormal. Yeah, it, it's it's quite extraordinary. Um, Perry Blunquist apparently uh, consulted on uh, the Picton case in British Columbia. And um, for anybody that kind of wants to to see a parallel like there's really a there is a parallel between that case and this case um at least in terms of the challenge of the search it was in a, it, the 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 search of the Picton farm uh you know in the lower mainland um was an extraordinary process that involved but it was a partnership between police and hundreds of civilian experts in forensics and archaeology um, you know, they searched the entire, this entire sprawling farm that was full of uh, all kinds of, you know, buried equipment and uh, animal carcasses, huge uh, manure, uh, uh, you know, dumps and ponds. And, uh, you know, and they did, they went in, and this is to your point again, they went in with the idea, though, that they needed this evidence to make the case against Robert Picton. And, and that, you know, not, like, I'm sure there was a, a degree of compassion as well, but they needed that evidence. And 
you know, uh, the, the horrifying, you know, scenario that's coming at us is that we're eventually going to find out that in addition to not, you know, really being tone deaf to the needs of the families, the victims' families, is that, you know, that they won't have enough evidence to, to get a conviction because they didn't go look for it. There's precedence for successful searches uh, across the United States. I can I see that uh, our colleagues at the CBC have unveiled a story where they've consulted with the U.S. consultant uh, to say, is this something uh, where there would be information, uh, you know, other information that could be uncovered, uh, not just human remains, but also uh, potentially information and clues to support the case. So the fact that they don't they don't, the police don't seem to be motivated by that. Uh, it seems to me to say that they've got uh, other evidence that mm-hmm. may they may be satisfied with, but certainly will not satisfy the needs of those families. Um, one other thing that came out that I didn't wasn't aware of this week, and I'm not sure if you're aware of that. Uh, there's a there's a significant difference in their earlier search at the Brady landfill site because it's owned by the city, and that. Uh, this prairie green landfill site is privately owned. And so that kind of makes the the fact that the premier and the mayor, um, well, the pre- would really be the premier, I suppose, uh, to order the, the ceasing of operations at the uh, prairie green landfill site out near Stony Mountain. Uh, it, it seems to be that would be, there's going to be some sort of compensation for those private owners. Uh, that certainly will come into play here. And uh, to, it makes it more significant that they stopped work there to make a decision on what's going to happen next. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, you know, I'll be the first to admit, and it's hard for a journalist to admit they don't know everything, but I did not know that uh, the city's uh, refuse contractor was using a private site. Um, so I think that, you know, yes, like I think that we're quickly getting to a position where regardless of the success or lack of success of a search, I don't see how that site can reopen. And, and I'm, uh, you know, I don't know the practical problems that that creates. Obviously a a big city like Winnipeg is probably going to need multiple landfill sites. Something's going to have to be done to compensate and work with the company. But, uh, you know, definitely like I can't see how that could possibly be allowed to continue serving as an active landfill site when we know um that it's you know it's it's become for lack of a better term it's sacred ground now um to a certain extent that you know the, the remains are there i think the other thing that was quite interesting and a reader brought my attention to this the city is a very complex system where the trucks um are plotted and tracked when they go into the dump there's gps locators so that they know where the trucks went to dump you know, each individual load. And quite frankly, uh, I mean, not that this happens, you know, every day, but it is remarkable how many cases, serial uh, uh, murder cases involve trying to find things in landfills. And if we're going to allow private companies to operate private dumps to support uh, refuse collection, you know, maybe it should become standard that, that there's more work done to track the trucks and make sure that we have a way of tracking back the load from an individual truck as much as possible. It, absolutely, that there needs to be some kind of uh, fail-safe 
method to be able to articulate, you know, to be able to keep track of. If if we're fully aware, as many people on Twitter have now done, by by the police signing off and saying we're not going to search, it's almost as if you're directing, as many advocates in the Indigenous community said, it's almost like you're directing people to, oh, if you want to get rid of evidence, just send it to the landfill. And there, it's now publicly known that there something has to be done, something has to be dealt with, regardless of the amount of time that this will take uh, to make a decision. Uh, the answers will not be good enough for Indigenous families until the remains are found. And I think that there's, in the midst of all of this discussion around the impossibility of finding remains at landfill sites, uh, we can't forget that you know it took 14 months of investigation in Toronto uh, to find the remains of Nathaniel Brito, mm-hmm. but uh, they did it and they did it at the Green Lane landfill just near Toronto that when his remains were sent there, uh, uh, they, I think they um, had a similar situation to what uh, is found right here in Winnipeg, but that now uh, people are saying no, in Toronto, they were they found a successful search, but it did take a great deal of time. And that will be probably the only method to be able to rectify and build relationships between the police and Indigenous communities in this situation. Mm-hmm. You know, Dan, this is also a week that uh, has been, I think, hard for the Premier. As much as the Premier, I, I think, uh, did intervene in a good way in this situation to stop work at the landfill site. The premier also gave a, uh, a state of the men, a state of the province speech that very much sounded like a pre-election speech. Uh, the election here in Manitoba is, uh, just over a year away, or I guess it'd be under a year away now. Right? Yeah. Uh, October, uh, on or before October, 2023, um, our colleague uh, Tom Broadbeck at the Free Press covered the speech and um, described it as um, more of a eulogy uh, than a uh, you know a, a genuine uh, sort of rah rah you know here we go Manitoba is going to do well which is kind of the the Winnipeg Chamber of Commerce state of the city state of the province speeches tend to be more uh, pep rallies than than anything else. Um, you know, uh, and it just like it, it's just patently clear that uh, Heather Stephenson, for all the the good and perhaps bad that she's brought to the job uh, since taking over last November, uh, does not appear to be the solution for the progressive conservatives. She remains unpopular. Her government remains unpopular. And more importantly, and I will talk about this uh, more in the third segment, uh, the last segment of our show today. Um, you know, they don't seem to be able to dig themselves out of trouble on the big files. She came in with a mandate to be the anti-Brian Pallister, uh, to change the tone of the government. And what we see is uh, the government, um, it, on some files, absolutely different tack, different solutions, but so often just stuck in the same silly stuff that this government has, has fallen prey to for the last six years. The optics on this are absolutely terrible. Uh, We know the long history of what they often call the glass cliff, which is uh, you have a a male leader of a party or a male head of a CEO or some male head of an organization who comes in uh, much fanfare for a long time, runs roughshod often with his solo kind of leadership, uh, eventually brings the party or the business to the brink of failure 
And then a woman is appointed uh, to sort of foresee or to take through the business um, in a new direction, but it is so impossible to do it with the existing infrastructure that she's often treated as the sacrificial lamb uh, for another man to come in. And so I hope that the Conservatives are aware that this uh, imagery, the optics of this, uh, looks absolutely terrible. And for Manitoba's first female premier to have kind of a Kim Campbell-esque delivery in her first term, that she's going to lead the Conservatives into an election where, in many ways, it's not going to be a destruction like the Conservatives in the 90s, but it's going to be uh, quite ugly in Winnipeg. The scenario, it's pretty stark. You know, like I would say, there's a couple of seminal moments that are coming up. Premier Stephenson will have another budget. And, um, you know, it, it, I think they're they're planning, they're sort of angling right now to be able to provide a major, major rebound on the budget deficit and possibly, uh, you know, uh, get very close to balancing the budget or at least very close to being able to predicting when they can. After that, there's a whole summer uh, worth of uh, campaigning to be done. There's time left. And this is this is certainly not the, the you know, the uh, history is not set in stone on this. But, uh, you know, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a rough, bumpy year. There's no doubt. I, it's not without effort. You know, Heather Stephenson has uh, in many ways more than Brian Pallister has come out as kind of a champion of the premier's. Uh, by being the uh, the head of the premiers on this of this issue of healthcare, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But um, it's not been not without a great deal of effort. I mean, Heather Stephenson, I've seen her at every event. I've seen her working very hard. Uh, she's even uh, you know come up. I mean, I I I I'll be I'll be honest. Like I've never been at an event where Brian Pallister has walked up to me. But I have been at events where Heather Stephenson has gone out of her way to say hello and and to be uh, cordial. And so uh, in so many different ways, I think that she's trying, but it's just too uphill at this point. On that note, uh, <laughs> I think it's time. <laughs> what a sad, sad note. Um, it's now time for the storytellers. I'm Brad Oswald. I'm the Perspectives Editor at the Winnipeg Free Press. I'm also a musician of sorts, and I play in a local band called Fixed Income. And this is The Storytellers. Here's a story about a musical moment that made a profound impression on me and my bandmates. About 10 years ago, my wife and I were touring Italy with a group that also included one of my bandmates, a guy named Dale. So we arrived in Rome in the blistering heat of late August, and after a long day of touring around, we went looking for a bar that could serve us a cold beer. The one we found happened to be owned by a couple of friendly guys from Eritrea, of all places, and we quickly decided that this would become our local for as long as we were in Rome. The next night, after another hot day, we stopped in for a beer to take the edge off the evening heat, and we asked the owner, John, if he had a patio or an outdoor space of some sort where we could gather. He led us to a starlit space out behind the bar and set up a table for ten. It was perfect. Well, almost. I said to my bandmate, Dale, the only thing that would make this better would be if we had a guitar. So he called John, the owner, over, and he asked him if he had one. He said no. But then he paused and he said, if you come back tomorrow. So, of course, we did. So, back in our private little courtyard behind this crowded bar, we passed the guitar, which John had produced as promised, back and forth, and we're singing songs and having a lovely time. When Dale's turn with the guitar came, he started playing the old John Danvers song, Take Me Home Country Roads. 
And as we all sang along to this familiar tune, we noticed a couple of the bar's regulars, Eritreans, we presumed, coming out into the courtyard. Then a few more. Some started dancing. Others just stood watching. One gentleman appeared to be weeping as we sang. When the song ended, that guy came over, placed his hand on my friend Dale's arm and said, Again? So we played it again. More people came outside. Dancing continued until it seemed everyone in the bar had joined us outside. The song ended and then there was another again. We ended up playing it four times. It was a particularly powerful moment that we didn't really understand, but became kind of a running joke inside the band. Every time we played Take Me Home Country Roads in a show, we'd share a version of that story. And still, we didn't really get why it happened until a couple of years ago when we were playing a show up in Lake Country. In between sets, a woman came up to me and said, I'm a professor of African history and I can tell you why. She went on to explain that Eritreans living abroad have typically fled the country to escape human rights abuses. As much as 10% of the population has left and thousands more leave every year, but they still feel a great sense of connection and a yearning to return. And it's because of that that this song, which says, Country Road, Take Me Home, To The Place I Belong, is incredibly resonant and important. It's about home. Something we can all appreciate, I guess. It was an unforgettable moment my friends and I experienced on a steamy night in Rome with a bunch of people we didn't know who were also very far from home. I'm here flying solo for our feature interview this week, which is um, uh, a look into a new installation at the Winnipeg Art Gallery, uh, headlines the Art of the News Cycle. It was created to commemorate the 150th anniversary of the Winnipeg Free Press, uh, which if you're a Free Press uh, subscriber, you may have heard one or two things about. Uh, and I'm very lucky this morning that I'm getting to uh, talk with the curator and, and really the, the creator of this uh, uh, exhibit, uh, Riva Simcoe. Good morning. Morning. I'm super excited to be on this podcast. Yes, well, it's uh, thank God people seem to be excited to be on the podcast. So we're going to go with that for now. Uh, so the first tough questions right off the bat. Uh, it is by observation because we've crossed paths two or three times. It appears that you are you have one of the largest uh, personal collections of headline and newsprint inspired clothing, uh, you know, of <laughs> yeah. anybody I know. And, and so like, was that always a thing for you or just <laughs> something that came uh, along with the exhibit? No, I am a big per like collector of prints. I have a lot of military print. I have a lot of polka dots and stripes. Um, but I've been collecting newsprint specific clothing since I started working on this show. And actually the first dress that I bought um, in newsprint very early on, maybe a year and a half ago, it became the inspiration for um, the wallpaper design that's in this show that um, is the background for a few art pieces. <laughs> so, and it's an amalgamation of um, a bunch of different Winnipeg Free Press articles in black and white and um, kind of made to look like a, a wallpaper print itself. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah uh, so now I do have a yeah. traditional <laughs> Traditional newspaper design like that stark black and yeah. white uh, I mean it does like I'm not objective about this at all obviously yeah. right uh, but it does have like uh, its own design impact like it's yeah, it's uh, a you know it, it and it, particularly um, people seem to be drawn to like getting closer and closer and reading you know yeah. all the words of the actual newspaper articles that are in there so but we'll, we'll talk more about the yeah. wallpaper which uh, you, you meant uh, you know my editor Paul Simin is um, threatening to redo his entire house <laughs> in this wallpaper so and I think his wife Kathy's not thrilled but 
We'll see. Sorry, Kathy. Well, we don't even know if that much wallpaper is available. <laughs> um, okay, so an exhibit like this, and, and I'll say off the bat, um, the first time I saw it, it was not what I expected it to be, which was a good thing. Uh, but, you know, we'll talk more about that. So, but let's first deal with how something like this comes together, because obviously this isn't, wasn't thrown together at the last moment. So what's the origin story of the exhibit? Yeah, so the exhibition started out as a conversation between my director, Stephen Boris, and your editor, Paul Semen, um, talking about the upcoming, at that time, anniversary of the Free Press, the 150th anniversary, um, which was a few years out at that point. And Stephen um, had this idea of, you know, wanting the WAG to do something to celebrate that, and especially because, you know, the, the Free Press has covered a lot of the WAG um, stories and a lot of our exhibitions over, you know, whatever, century and a half. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so when it came, the assignment came to me, I was actually um, not super thrilled about it, to be honest, <laughs> because I didn't see it as something that I could do. I'm not a historical um, curator. I, I'm not a museum curator in that sense that deals with a lot of um, necessarily archives or objects per se. I'm an art curator, right? Yeah. Um, and so I was a little worried about what kind of what um, Paul and Stephen had in mind for the show. But what after I sat down and talked to Paul and some others from the Free Press, um, they were so just enthusiastic about um, having a show that dealt more broadly with media and newspapers in the 21st century and news in general and fake news and advertising and news and a lot of kind of larger issues and concepts that we mm -hmm. all deal with that I was like oh okay I can do that no problem <laughs> I know artists who are working on these exact I ideas and themes yeah there's only so many like old hand presses and, and yeah and plates and things that you can sort of tolerate in a single ex even me yeah. in a single exhibit yeah. exactly well and some people are really into that especially I mean my husband's a printmaker so oh. you know, <laughs> he's into that yeah. kind of thing and those kind of objects and a lot of people are but it's just not what I do or what necessarily the WAG does we're a very art focused place right sure but as soon as I you know from there was able to just turn to artists and and just look for artists that were thinking about a lot of these broader ideas too then it was it was easy and then I got really excited and that's when I started building my own um, wardrobe collection <laughs> <laughs> a living walking piece of, of news, newsprint yeah, uh, art that's what I've become <laughs> um, I, so that I would say uh, is the that was the biggest surprise and yeah. like but also the most thrilling discovery was to come in and see that you had commissioned work from Manitoba artists uh, to not really, I wouldn't say it's necessarily to interpret the free press. I mean, that was part of it, but it seemed to be a, sort of a broader, you know, what is a newspaper? How does it connect to the community? What impacts does it have? What, you know, what is community from the perspective of a news organization, that kind of thing. And, yeah. you know, like my wife and I, like we, one of the great things about living in Winnipeg is the ability to meet artists and and yeah. acquire their work you know things created by them yeah. that you know maybe people in bigger cities don't have that opportunity so i 
And as it turns out, Winnipeg yeah. artists are some of the best in the world. Yeah. I mean, some of Canada's um, best visual art um, exports are from Winnipeg or were schooled in Winnipeg or had some connection to Winnipeg. So, yeah, yeah not only do we have like direct connection with artists in a smaller community, but the ones in Winnipeg happen to be really stellar. Yeah, no, no. Uh, <laughs> it, I mean, just again, like I, I'm not particularly objective about these things, but there was, and we'll talk about it uh, afterwards, but there was one piece in particular that mm -hmm. like everybody who worked at the Free Press stopped and went, like it just kind of, it was kind of ripe for the old jugular. Is that good, Miriam's piece? Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> in a good way, yeah. in a good way, but and in a way too that I'm not sure, I, I'm, I'm hoping to talk to her, Yeah. Uh, but I'm not even sure she may have realized like the the visceral impact of that piece. But we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. So break down the exhibit into its major components for me. Um, yeah, so there's a mix of kind of all types of artistic media here in with some, yes, historical objects, some archival papers that I got from the, um, uh, like the dating way back to 1867, I think is the earliest yeah. one in the show. No, I, the earliest one is, of course, 1872, which is the um, first edition, of course, right. But uh, then there's all medias, so there's textiles represented, embroidery, um, printmaking, of course, video, photography, painting, installation, sculptures. So um, it's a, I, I wanted it to be pretty dynamic and mm -hmm. um, a range of ideas coming together and um, so I think that that's what you see when you walk in you're not the first person that said they were surprised that it wasn't a I think you were people are expecting more of a museum style historical yeah. show but it's definitely an art show there's also a, a spot where we're sitting right now in the show that's an activity area we're calling it the newsroom <laughs> which um might well it's it, yeah it's Spartan uh, furnishings are actually uh not inappropriate <laughs> for what we back on the Carlton Street newsroom days this would have worked just fine you know <laughs> really? yeah, yeah absolutely yeah no it's yeah uh, it's more for like family area just sure. for fun but yeah so um okay so there there are a few yeah. uh artifacts yeah. so so to speak is that the appropriate word mm -hmm. for okay so there's uh there's some of the old uh, cylindrical plates that we used to use back in the hot type days with the did you ever see the the strips of lead that you know the the bendy strips of lead that they used to use for the hot type um i don't yeah i've seen images of them i haven't seen them in person but well, actually that big um cylindrical one we have there is also lead yeah <laughs> and then there there yeah there's um several color there's a one of the first color plates images is here so you can see there which is multiple plates because each plate would have a different color yes and then have to be um run through the press the same paper several times right That's to right. get all the layers of color on so there's examples yeah. of that in the show um the actual very first free press press that's right <laughs> the, the red river uh yeah, yeah that, came, yeah, the that right. came from new york yeah. city yeah. by luxton yeah it's amazing uh it's an amazing piece of equipment and actually i mean you mentioned your husband is a printmaker yeah. um and like printmakers look at that and they see like a lot of continuity in the technology yeah. you know like yeah i mean press a press um, um, technology hasn't actually evolved that much. <laughs> the yeah. way that we use it, yeah. certainly, right? Yeah. Well, actually, not even. Yeah. But um, 
and this piece is in pretty good shape. It's missing a few parts apparently, but um, if you know, it could be used again if we yeah. wanted to. <laughs> yeah, and it's. I mean, it, this is hard to to translate into a podcast format, but I mean, the term press, you know, freedom mm -hmm. of the press, it all like it does come from the fact that the original presses were uh, yeah, machines where you presses. had to yeah. pull the lever and press the plate against the paper. Yeah. Uh, ink it by hand and yeah no I mentioned several the, hundred times so, yeah that's right <laughs> I mentioned the lead strips because yeah. back when I started in the free press in 1980 uh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know it, like a million years ago um, you know we all had our own desks but we had to share computer terminals and the terminals were just for pro like for writing stories uh, they, they, they weren't connected to any internet or anything at that time. But I remember when I was given my first desk at the Free Press, I opened up one of the drawers and there were uh, was a stack of the lead strips oh, really? still there. Yeah. So it was like um, we were never, it, on Carlton Street in particular, we were never that far away from the very origins. Mm -hmm. You know, you used to be able to go down onto Carlton Street and look through the windows uh, yeah. where the presses were, and the the um, uh, the pressmen all made the, like they all made hats out of the newsprint. That's right. And, yes. Yeah, and it's. I mean, you know, I'm not saying like you know these days in in the days of the Graham, uh, people may not appreciate. Uh, the loving attention, mm -hmm. you know, it, it was an artisanal yeah, activity. Product. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, From start to finish. Mm -hmm. um, so, okay, so, well, but let's, the, the star of the show certainly is the, the interpretation that the artists have made. So when you, like, I'm going back to your reaction, which was like, an art installation on a newspaper? So how do you, like, how do you have the conversation with the artists and, you know, like what guidelines, if any, were they given and or were they just told Free Press 150 community go? Um, yeah, so Miriam's, so a lot of these works were actually pre-existing works with the exception of Miriam Rudolph's um, series of series. prints. Um, but so the pre-existing works were artists that I'd been following and knew that they were um, interested in media in general. Miriam's piece um, was commissioned for the um, show. It's a set of 16 prints. I really wanted to commission a printmaker because of that connection to the right. press. Um, and I really wanted it to be a local person who had some sort of personal identification with the Winnipeg Free Press in particular and with the history of this place, right, mm -hmm. and the local locality of it. And um, Miriam had just finished another project that was also looking at a different set of archives um, at the British Museum. And I thought, you know, that's actually a perfect thing, I think, for Miriam, who's an artist I know and have, you know, worked with before, to um, continue this idea of looking at archives and creating something out of that. So I pitched the idea of creating a series for this show. And from there, she had free reign. She could do whatever mm -hmm. she wanted. I did want her to include some aspect of the free press archives in some mm -hmm. way. Um, and she, I mean, she took off from there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it's it's really funny because um, we were talking about the, the other free press people that came with to see the show, about the trigger points that came from her her oh, yeah. work so that the, the one really impactful one is the one where, where it has a picture of the um, uh, the stacks of newspapers yeah. on shelves and which is not actually those are not images of the original library 
uh, both at Carlton Street and then when we moved to Mountain Avenue, we had a physical library and a team right. of librarians that clipped every article out of the newspaper yeah. and put them in envelopes and then created like large scrapbooks of you know the pages. But we also had a section where we put, I don't know, a dozen of every day's paper in. Yeah. And there was in this one stack, there was a year's worth of free presses there. And, and if you needed, if you really wanted to see your story that you published three months ago, you would just go in and grab a newspaper yeah. and, and uh, you know, shelf. so that was like, I was, I was, um, looking at, at that print with, uh, the only other employee, at the free press who's been there longer than I have, Margaret McMillan. <laughs> and, uh, I said, you know, like, Oh my God. And she said, I know, like it was just, Recognizable. Oh yeah. And it was just, but it was also like a reminder of the library yeah. and before digital archives and, yeah. You know where we had the microfiche uh, mm -hmm. machines in the back, um, but you know there were other images as well. Like there, there, there are other prints with map grids and mm -hmm. pictures of homes. And again, like I, I talked to somebody who said, you know what that makes me think of? It makes me think of the big uh, map of Winnipeg. We had a big map of Winnipeg and a big map of Manitoba up on the wall. In the newsroom. In the newsroom, really? and that's yeah. where, like, if somebody said, "Where the hell is <laughs> blah 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 street?" We, we looked it up on these these maps. So, I mean, it's a subsequent interview warning to view, you know listeners. I'll, I'll be interviewing uh, Miriam. I yeah. hope yeah. about uh, how she interpreted the the mission. Uh, but it, it is um, so for non newspaper people. Like, what kind of reaction have you been getting? Well, wait. Let me go back to the what News you were just saying yeah. about that visual representation of that archive of the paper right? yeah. and we don't see that unless unless you're someone like Miriam who's going and she went into the digital archives and the physical archives right yeah so even that's interesting that even you in the business ha don't see the visual aesthetic representation of what you're doing every day the sort of profoundity of it and the amount of it just the mm -hmm. sheer scale of the information that you're putting out there every day as the way you used to in the past, mm -hmm. perhaps, right? Mm -hmm. And um, that's that struck me when I went to the what are now the archives in the provincial legislature build, building archives of the papers, yeah. and just the sheer enormity of the amount of information <laughs> that yeah. is kept in these historical yeah. papers, right? True, true story. Like if I'm uh, I'm talking to someone of a younger generation, which thankfully my work allows me to do. One of the things that I challenge them to do is um, to spend one weekend mm -hmm. and get a copy of the Sunday New York Times yeah. and yes. read the physical newspaper mm -hmm. because the scope of, of the information that's in, and, and really, it's one of the things that we lose online. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, uh, every story is a rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. And once you get into it, like we try to provide access to other information, but mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a very sort of focused on that story. Yeah. When you open up a page of a newspaper, you get to see multiple stories. If you yeah. keep following the pages, like after a while, um, I mean, what I've told a lot of people is, I, like I, I bet you lunch, beer, whatever you want to bet, that you will see a dateline from a country or a place that you didn't even know existed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, despite all the changes that we've undergone, yeah. you know, we're still like pumping it out. Yeah. Uh, is that so? Well, let me ask you an interesting question. Uh, so prior to doing this, what would you have said your newspaper consuming? habits were like would you were you did you read it online did you ever read the physical 
Because, I mean, in your business, uh, art is a tactile yeah. experience it, still. That's right. Um, yeah, that's interesting. So, interesting question. Because of late, I've been more of a radio person. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no. <laughs> it's okay. We're on the, we're sort of on the radio now. That's so, true. we're good. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so, I, I'd say the, the majority of my news I get from the radio. However, and then um, from there, probably online. But I am a weekend newspaper reader and have been for a long time. I don't buy every weekend paper. Sure. And I, I move around into which paper I will physically buy. It depends, yeah. you know, which one is the thickest <laughs> weekend or which one looks the best. <laughs> yeah, on a, <laughs> on a kilo, yeah. you know, a gram basis. Exactly, That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I am like that Sunday paper, Saturday paper kind of reader, um, specifically because, you know, the weekend also presents you with that opportunity to sit back and have the time to look at something physically, get in deep, maybe read a whole section cover to cover. Long form. Yeah, time, whereas yeah. an online consumption, even radio consumption, um, kind of lends itself more to in between doing in between things yeah. or just um, looking up one thing in particular or maybe cruising around a bit between different yeah. you know web pages, but not really thinking about or having um, an experience, like a conscious experience with it. You're just sort of fact finding in a yeah. way. So, um, so that's kind of my, <laughs> my newspaper consumption. It's become more <laughs> now since doing this show, uh, yeah. obviously just consuming the physical paper has become a part of the sort of research for the show. But my, actually my very first job that I ever had was in a newspaper. I'm from a small town in Alberta, Rocky Mountain House. And I worked at the, the Rocky Mountaineer, shout out. <laughs> 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 and they, uh. I was I was doing was what it you, a weekly or a daily? It's it was a weekly paper. Yeah. It's still a weekly paper. Yeah, it's still around. And nice. I was cutting out the ads for the ad department, which was one guy, <laughs> and filing them away for him. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Ernie Murius. Oh my gosh! I'm just remembering that now. But yeah. that was my very well, first I, job. Well, so, so you're now you're now part of the fraternity. You know, <laughs> you're part of the brotherhood sisterhood. Yeah. Now. Wait I, a second. I didn't I'm even know that. Holy cow. <laughs> Club. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's fantastic. Like so, yeah. Like I, I mean, I think that the you know part of the underlying message of all this too is just the importance of the news. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, which is uh, you know my biggest fear is not whether people will read the free press or read the Globe and Mail mm -hmm. or read national whatever, but it's whether they'll read, like whether yeah. they'll consume uh, the news thoughtfully um, with taking time to consume it, um, thinking about the, the um, platform itself, what mm -hmm. is the platform saying to you, whether it's a newsprint or online or radio or television, like how are the, what's being said to you beyond necessarily the facts or the information, yeah, yeah. yeah or the stories. But also I think um, the important thing that's really stood out for me in this show in, in researching for the show is the importance of the locality and having a local context for mm -hmm. your news. Um, without that, you're really kind of just floating in the sort of national or a global um, story pot, mm -hmm. <laughs> which may or may not have some relevance to you. Often it does, you know, especially with sure. larger serious issues like climate change or um, gun violence or what have you. But um, it's, if you don't know what's happening kind of on your street mm -hmm. or you don't have any sort of um, relationship to what's happening, how are you going to be a responsible citizen to yeah. vote or how will you 
um, responsibly make decisions um, yeah. uh, in your life, right? So, yeah, no, yeah no. the local context, I think, is even more important. Well, and it, yeah, I mean, and I think that, um, again, like, you know, I could be, uh, I could be um, uh, extrapolating, uh, but I'm a professional at that, so it's okay. <laughs> but, you know, like, there, there is, like, when you come through it, there, there is, a, there is a, a small note of advocacy for the news itself yeah which is is really you know like we went into this whole uh digital news revolution thinking that the the war was going to be or the battle was going to be fought between like who's going to want to read ink on paper and who's going to want to read it online and Mm -hmm. and we were completely taken aback by the fact that no 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 it's like there are so many other things to do online Mm -hmm. the battle is between getting people to pay attention to the news or not pay attention yeah altogether yeah yeah and it's uh so so the so i had um uh talked about how some of the free press people have reacted to this how have non-newspaper non-ink stain wretches as we like to call ourselves how how have they responded to the exhibit yeah so far um um, so far, I mean, all the feedback I'm getting has <laughs> been really good. Um, uh, I think like yourself, people were expecting, most people who come mm-hmm. to this show are expecting more of a historical show. Um, but they seem to be pleasantly surprised that it's really an art show. And they seem to be really enjoying the, the what the artists have to say here. <laughs> yeah. And are interested in kind of exploring and kind of amazed at some of the... Um, um, pieces like Miriam Dion's, another Miriam, but Miriam Dion's um, really elaborate, ornamental, totally painstaking um, mosaics really made out of newspaper are pretty incredible. And yeah. people really seem to identify with her work and just the beauty of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we, I, I've, I've been checking out, we have little iPad stations around and we have some poll questions in there of like for visitors just to mm-hmm. leave their mark. And the comments have been really interesting and really fun. And <laughs> um, so, yeah, so far, so I, good. I, 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 hope the com- I hope their comments have a different tone than I normally get on, you know, email and, yeah, they, and social so media. Yeah, so far, not so many, like, trolling kind of comments, surprisingly. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, the trolls get everywhere, though. They yeah, sneak, I'm they, sure they will. I'm they, sure they will. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we talked a little bit about, like, before we started recording, that this is also a very good example, though, of... Um, uh, a bit of an evolution in what art galleries uh, are, mm-hmm. are doing. Um, you know, I've been very fortunate to be all over the world, and I've seen some of the world's great galleries. And in my wife and I, when we visit, like we've started to notice um, less sort of periodical uh, examinations. I mean, that's great, right? Uh, and you know, if you're if you're a fan of a certain artist, to be able to go or a style you know, Im- immersive, or, yeah. you know, or a ton- yeah, but right. but the, you know this connection to current events, mm-hmm. uh, maybe not in a newspaper sense, but connection to current events, interpretation of uh, of current events. We we, um, uh, uh, we were in New Orleans and went to the uh, New Orleans, uh, I believe it's the New Orleans um, uh, Museum of oh, Art, yeah. mm-hmm. and. Uh, it was like we never wanted to leave. That they had um, a photo exhibit on the blending of Haitian and French, and um, you know culture, and about how um, Haitians and uh, uh, and those from African countries had adopted 
the Louisiana French, you oh, know, the, yeah. the third line, mm-hmm. you know, so they're like their funerals had become like part traditional Louisiana French influenced, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with the music, the jazz and everything and part like they had circuses and flamethrowers and yeah. like it's it, unbelievable. And so and that's what partly what this is, right? Like this is connecting to mm-hmm. the here and now yeah. and not necessarily uh, the past, which is fine, but it is yeah. an evolution. No, yeah? That makes me so happy. Yeah to hear you describe a show that uh, you learned about more than just, you know, an artist and what the artist wanted mm-hmm. or um, a time period, like you said, but about a whole culture and, and certain connections, right, mm-hmm. between maybe American culture, Haitian culture. Um, that is, I think, I don't think, I know that's the direction that art galleries are moving. It's definitely the way that Wag Kalmyuk is mm-hmm. operating now. We think Every day we think about the things that are important to the community Mm -hmm. um, and what we can do to help facilitate what members of the community, different communities Mm -hmm. in Manitoba, um, need and want and would like to see here, right? We think about that all the time, (laughs) so many discussions, and and how to make it meaningful. Um, I mean, artists have always been interested in current events and um what's happening and have always expressed that but galleries have been less have been a lot more um interested in the hierarchy of (laughs) you know who's the best artist at doing that or um those kind of things and and now i think we're a lot more interested in becoming part of the cultural conversation and helping facilitate really other conversations and dialogues mm-hmm. right yeah no i mean like listen uh i lined up for barnes you know and bought tickets i lined yeah. up for the vatican collections mm-hmm. and 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 i feel like you know as a as a, uh, a fan of art mm-hmm. like i feel more, that i gained a lot through those experiences but uh, you know there, there's something like to go and be able to see something that's connected to the here and now connected to the community outside um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, like I, I think it just broadens, yeah, exactly. The, you know, the experience, uh, I'm, but it's, a, you know, and that's, there's a direct parallel to what newspapers are trying to do too. I yes. Mean, right. You know, uh, we're doing podcasts now yeah. and, uh, and newspapers yeah. write history, right? Like they are one of the, they are, they are writing our history for us, but so do galleries. Yeah. So, um, galleries write the history of art galleries, write the history of our, our, our cultural history. And we've done a terrible job of it for, you know, several centuries um, because our job up until now has been very colonial. You know, we've been writing a a very specific colonial history Mm -hmm. and left out a lot of the communities that we now are 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 hoping to revise (laughs) that that history. Right. And and become something different that is not um, colonial or that we can never escape that colonial past. But at least um, um shows people how to read that history, right? And yeah. how to read um, our everyday kind of interactions with that history, the way that newspapers, yeah. I think, are trying to. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, to a certain extent, like, we're still... Uh, well, I mean, anybody in, in a creative endeavor, you're always... You're never really at the end, mm-hmm. right? You're always sort yeah. of, you know... Yeah, uh, you no, know, it's not... It's not. There's no yeah. process. Yeah, there's. we're never going to be decolonized or yep. completely indigenized it's it's an ongoing process or always are completely equitable right we yeah. it's an ongoing process but that is that's the point yeah no no <laughs> and I, in, yeah. in a lot of ways newspapers like art are, are both a reflection of 
our um, values as a mm -hmm. society, and uh, for a long time those have been settler values. Mm -hmm. um, and the, it's a reflection of the power um, and who has the power in our communities. But it's also um, newspapers, um, art galleries have an opportunity to step outside that as well, yeah. I think, too. And also reflect it back on us <laughs> in a way that is critical. <laughs> right? Well, yeah, and, and I mean, I think, I think looking at the way others see us, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I'm, you know, I was, we're talking among ourselves, free pressers, about the headline wall. Yes, okay. Monterrada. Yes, uh, yeah, which is, yeah, is incredibly, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to read them out. Well, I might read one out, mm -hmm. but it's incredibly entertaining. Mm -hmm. Now, it, it's not like, I think, you know, it was interesting as an interpretation because, you know, really, th this is a collection of some of the most uh, uh, humorous, cynically humorous mm -hmm. uh, things that have ever appeared in, in a newspaper. But, uh, you know, which is definitely like people who write headlines, they consider that to be their its own art form. Yeah. Um, you know, but it's not, what's interesting is you probably had the choice of like, you know, D-Day headline or, you know, like the, because that's usually the way people in newspapers think about it. They think of major historical, major historical events. events yeah. And, um, you know, um, the one that, uh, you know, the one that really got me, which is the one that we were just killing ourselves. There's several, but uh, Netflix doesn't want to be a better streaming service. It wants to be Disney. Drowning you know? poo among 67 possible <laughs> new emoji. <laughs> you know, I know. Looking at cat pictures is good for you, even yeah. if you're doing it to procrastinate. <laughs> you know, there's at least two people in my house are going to be thrilled that, that, that? the headline yeah. was dredged back up. But it is like, you know, uh, I and I, I, I'm sure other journalists do this, but, you know, I write a column when somebody nails the headline. Mm -hmm. I usually send them a note and say, because, <laughs> you know, I don't write the headlines for my columns. And it is kind of its own art form. And now it has its own wall in yeah. the art gallery. So that is awesome. Yeah, it's and actually Ron Tarada. So this is a piece by Ron Tarada. It's several canvases. Um, white canvases with black text headlines painted onto them and they're painted in the font of the New York Times mm, yeah. um, but they're all actual headlines that were that um, Ron called from The Verge um, which is a primarily online platform um, news platform and it's primarily geared towards a millennial audience right mm -hmm. whereas the New York Times is primarily geared towards um, there is like an older audience a more traditional audience. <laughs> more traditional okay there you yeah, go more traditional audience that makes more sense yeah um and <clears throat> he's really he's he's um both poking fun at our kind of lack of attention span to the news because the title of the piece is tldr which is too long didn't read um and but also pointing to that at that idea of the aesthetic of the news mm -hmm. and how something like the New York Times font has in itself become an indicator of um, authority or authenticity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and its aesthetic is one that we tend to um, take for granted and yeah. trust, right? Or, or as the case may be now, not trust. Mm -hmm. um, very seen as the enemy, right, of, um, of real news or um, what have you. So, you know, and it's, it's, it's talking about that physicality again, too, or yep. the design element that's so important in, <laughs> in yeah. how we consume the news. Um, 
and who is consuming what news. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, for that and uh, Miriam Rudolph's work mm -hmm. and the wallpaper, by the way, when we mentioned the wallpaper, like it really is wallpaper. Yeah. Uh, made out of uh, free press um, images, like pages. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, it, will Paul be able to acquire wallpaper? Yes, we have yeah. a digital file of it, so we can, it can be printed on really anything. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, it was designed by our designer, Mike Carroll. He did an awesome job. Yeah, no, it, <laughs> it, it really is fantastic and yeah. uh, saw a lot of names of uh, yeah. reporters that are no longer with the newspaper and which was really kind of a melancholy experience as well but uh, you know so but my my big thanks to you was that like people in newspapers we all think newspapers are beautiful like we, yeah. we you know we actually think that you know what we do there's some beauty in what we do and obviously people disagree but this is like really we kind of felt that this confirmed that a little mm -hmm. bit that they, that other people could kind of see some of the the beauty and the intrigue and whatever too so thanks for that <laughs> oh yeah no absolutely i mean it it is an art form and um that's even the online platforms for the news have a design aesthetic right and what amazes me about the newspaper or any kind of um news platform is that that those design elements, the the aesthetic, the beauty of that is produced every single day. Yeah. <laughs> like that's a crazy amount of work. <laughs> and um and and the fact that it com it comes out every day and that it has this um beautiful physical presence that is something we can identify immediately, whether we're consuming it or not, but even just walking by it in the seven eleven, um, is is fascinating and also really a lot more significant than I think we get it credit for, right? <laughs> well, we, we we do still consider it the daily miracle, you know, it when, is the, a when daily the, miracle. the newspaper comes out, and uh, particularly in an environment where uh, you know fewer people are consuming news through traditional mm -hmm. ways. Uh, but uh, you know, we live in hope uh, that, but and certainly things like this, uh, you know. I'm hoping it will drive some enthusiasm uh, for the free press, but also just in general, yeah. what I tell people is like, read the free press. That would be really awesome for those of us who draw a salary from there. But, yeah. but if, you know, but read other stuff as well. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. So. Um, which you should anyways, you should have, you know, you should read the, your local context. Absolutely. Um, but you shouldn't read, you know, a variety of sources and get a yeah. feel for, for what's out there for a absolutely. variety of voices. Right. Uh, Riva Sinko, uh, Winnipeg Art Gallery. Thank you so much for the work you've done here. Like we're all uh, we're all flattered, you know. And uh, I'm really relieved yeah. to hear that. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, for sure. Like it's uh, you know in a in a world where we sometimes think people actually hope that we fail. You know, it, it's like to see something like this is very very empowering. Thank you for that comment. I'm really I'm glad that you felt that. Thank you very much for this. Thank you. A huge miigwech and thanks to Riva Simcoe, curator of such a great exhibit uh, that I got to see constructed as it went at the Winnipeg Art Gallery, uh, honoring the 150 years of the Winnipeg Free Press. Uh, we're a little biased, I think, but it, it does a great job to tell our history, all the good, the bad and the, uh, the great parts, but also the really complicated parts of the ways that the Free Press has uh, both... Uh, told the story of this community, but also in many ways um, 
also contributed to some of the uh, lighter, the most difficult moments of our community. Uh, it's an exhibit everyone should go and see. It's open till May 21st. I hope everybody gets a chance to go down to the art gallery to go see it. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, it is uh, pretty cool. And no, we're not objective. And I will tell you that at least one of my colleagues, okay, so it was Paul Simin, the editor of the Free Press, uh, I when I remarked that I've been around for almost 37 of those years as a Free Press employee, the suggestion was made that that they could include me in the exhibit as an artifact, you know, maybe in a in a glass case or I don't know, like I, I kind you of could imagine be a living one. You know, people could, you know, sort of pull you off the shelf and and sit you down for a bit. And you could narrate your stories of of chasing around Gary Filman. Yeah, and then you know, in the bottom, like you know, as they do in art galleries, there'd be like a little information card, you know, and it would say you know, ink-stained wretch circa 1986. So, you know. And you could rotate your clothing, you know, going back to <laughs> what it was like in 1988, you know. Yeah, there's there's no way I'm I'm putting on my, my wardrobe from 1988, you know. Let's just say I learned through those years that, you know, dark socks go with dark shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, the the uh, the, the long simmering uh, national political story right now is the battle between the premiers and uh, the federal government in Ottawa over more funding for health care. Manitoba's premier, Heather Stephenson, is playing a significant role in this debate. She is the chair of the Council of the Federation, which is the um, the uh, gathering of uh, Canada's first ministers. And, uh, you know, she's she's been very front and center in the in what she calls uh, the 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 campaign for a, quote, fair and sustainable funding for the future of healthcare in the country. And, you know, it, it's funny because so the premiers are right and they're also wrong. I, I love stories where politicians are right or wrong. They're right in that the federal government could be doing more to to support to financially support healthcare. They're wrong however in the idea that the money should just come to them without strings because quite frankly um they haven't really shown that they deserve to spend the money without strings. This is all about about a month ago uh the council of the federation uh got together uh, made demands of the federal government to say we need to raise from $38 billion transfer payments to about $73 billion. Um, that's a very significant increase that can't be taken very lightly by the federal government. And the federal government was actually open to the idea of increasing the $38 billion um, significantly to the tune of about 20 to 25%. But uh, how badly the premiers look in a situation in which many, uh, particularly from right-leaning provinces, uh, we're thinking Alberta, we're thinking, uh, you know, even right here, Manitoba to Ontario, uh, offering checks, payment, tax credits, whatever else that they're offering. Um, many of these uh, provincial governments are in situations of being reelected post pandemic, trying to get political favor. Um, giving out money that they've been given by the federal government is a bad look, and then turning to the federal government and wanting more money. And of course, what they want is they want uh, increases of billions of dollars with absolutely no expectations. The federal government uh, has been saying the number one thing that we want is a staffing guarantee that that uh, ERs, long-term care facilities, these will be staffed adequately and you must guarantee that these staffing uh uh, there should be a staffing partnership agreement that to make sure that particularly long-term care facilities, which 
every province uh, over the past few years has been condemned for uh, mm-hmm. of doing badly by giving private uh, ownership over to the care of seniors. And we know that during the pandemic, it was uncovered the bad conditions, the horrendous conditions, life and death conditions in those long-term care facilities. The The federal government's been driven on an issue of pharmacy around childcare. And I think was willing to die on this hill, mm-hmm. uh, even to starve the premiers out to say you must come to some kind of agreement to have some kind of controls over this money um, or at least deliverables. Yeah, the the deliverables are really important. I mean, um, you know, every province in this country has to acknowledge that as much as there's, you know, there's a a funding crunch, um, you know, there's never, it never seems there's going to be enough money to go around uh, based on the demands. But provinces have not, and, and there are there are exceptions. But the provinces have not been innovative; they have not tried to find the structural, the non-monetary uh, innovations and modernizations that they can uh, bring to the uh, table to make the system function better. Really, really good example that was brought up recently in Manitoba is that a couple of provinces do operate sort of a, a central. Uh, booking and consultation service for uh, family doctors and doctors in rural and remote areas. So like, you know, if a, if a family doctor in Carmen uh, has a patient that, that may have, may need specialist treatment, that doctor on his or her own has to call around individually to find a, a, a specialist who can do a consult for that patient. And then if if in consultation with the specialist, they decide that, yes, they, they need specialist treatment, then they have to call around to hospitals to find an open bed and find a, a place and, and kind of schedule that treatment. And this is like so incredibly, I was going to use the, uh, I was going to use a bad word there, but it's blanked up uh, because in Saskatchewan and a couple of other provinces, Physicians can call a central number. They can speak to a knowledgeable person who will connect them with a specialist quickly. And then if there's a a decision made they need specialist treatment, that central terminal also allows for uh, uh, a a treatment plan to be devised as quickly as possible. This is not a lot of money. This is pocket change. Uh, when you consider the billions of dollars that are being spent on on uh, healthcare, and yet without it, our system doesn't function efficiently. And moreover, it's tougher to recruit doctors to a province that does they, that doesn't have modern tools. Anyone who's been to an ER knows that you're looking at anywhere between fourteen to almost twenty hour waits uh, if it's not emergent hospitals are sending people home for general, you know, general procedures uh, that should have been done coming out of the pandemic, year-long waiting lists. And so the pressure here has gotten to the point where things have gotten so absurd that former BC Premier John Horgan has offered to mediate these meetings, which he just previously was calling the federal government stupid and Uh, Now he wants to mediate. So this is how absurd things have gotten. The two big pressures that have come this week, uh, there was a collective letter written by every head of every doctor's association in the country, including nurses as well, uh, that uh, urged the federal government to go back to the table with the Council of the Federation. And then, of course, there is the uh, ongoing pressing uh, need of 
the federal government to deal with these issues, in particular the ways in which parents are demanding changes and this increase in child sickness that has led mm -hmm. to many emergent cases for children. Um, so those two pressures, I think, will force this meeting to happen. Whether there'll be changes is the big question. I think both sides need a win here. Yeah. Uh, whether that happens sooner, we'll find out. Yeah, I, I think as long as the provinces make, um, you know, the table stakes are money with no strings, we, we can actually fairly um, you know, be cynical about their motivations. I mean, quite frankly, it's a national universal healthcare system. We, you know, there should be similar standards across the country. And quite frankly, uh, you know, uh, money with no strings attached is not the most important issue. The most important issue is bringing our healthcare system into the 21st century, making it run efficiently, spending money on things like home care, on uh, preemptive health strategies to help people be healthier rather than focusing on treating them when they're sick. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure that the, the premiers quite see that as the most pressing concern. So uh, this is a story that, uh, oh, you know, we've got dozens of other podcasts uh, we can fill with uh, discussion about debate over federal health care funding. That's right. Yeah, you've heard it here first. We're doing dozens more podcast episodes, so and then yeah. we're gonna we're gonna deal with the whole issue of private healthcare. Yes, because uh, you know because the, the condemnation of this whole issue is that the right more right leaning governments are trying to make the system inefficient intentionally uh, to be able to increase and the argument for the private intervention. But that's yeah. for another day. Uh, thanks to Dan for taking some of the heavy lifting as I've been away out of the province and freezing uh, in the and dark. <laughs> <laughs> i've been wearing shorts um as i've been moving around here but uh you know big thanks as well to our all partners at cjnu and adam glenn our producer um huge thanks as well to our colleagues of the free press always and uh, particularly this week for unveiling themselves uh showing off the the history of the newspaper um and so uh, uh reva simcoe at the Winnipeg Art Gallery, and our storyteller, uh, Brad Oswald. Headlines is the name of the exhibit. And that's a heck of a headline you just came up with there. Free press staff reveal themselves to Winnipeg. I think that that's a winner. I think uh, we earned our uh, paychecks this week. <laughs> that's right. Thanks to everybody who took the time to listen to our podcast, and we will see you in a week. Miigwech. Thanks. Thanks.